This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. CARP, a new vision of aging, recently launched a major health care campaign. It's a challenge to the federal and provincial governments to fix health care now. Libby Snymer was joined on Monday by Fightback's Zoomer squad to talk about the response so far. Here are Zoomer magazine senior editor Peter Muggridge, David Kravitz, vice president at Zoomer Media, and Marissa Lennox, chief policy officer at CARP. We've received a good response so far on the campaign. In fact, a number of provinces have even gotten back to us. Uh, we sent letters to each premier, their respective health ministers and finance ministers, um, laying out the specific demand of our campaign and expressing sort of what our concerns are with respect to our healthcare system. And so far, so good. We've received some pretty good feedback. Well, that's pretty impressive if you've got responses from mm-hmm. actual official people. David? Well, I think that they may there may be some worry, I hope there's some worry, that CARP will succeed in changing the dialogue toward looking at our performance relative to the money we're spending near the top among OECD countries, we're getting results near the bottom. And if we can start getting the public sort of riled up on this issue, I think the politicians are going to feel an increasing level of pressure. What we're basically saying is that our dollars are spent inefficiently, that the various stakeholders in our healthcare system, from long-term care homes to hospitals to primary care providers, that they operate in silos. And when you look at Canada to c- compared to other OECD countries, not including the United States, countries with with comparable healthcare systems, they're performing better. So for example, Canadian patients wait longer for specialist appointments and elective surgeries than patients in Netherlands, Switzerland, Germany, Australia. Why is that? Why in Scotland do 90% of patients see their GP in under 48 hours, but in Canada, only 43% do? But data points, Libby, only tell one part of the story. There are also the personal stories that I hear from CART members every single day that are frankly horrific. And for this reason, we've decided to shine a light on this issue. Peter, uh, the magazine is all over this. Yeah, we uh, covered the the excellent CARP launch. I'd like to congratulate Marissa and David. Uh, that was one of the best CARP uh, advocacy launches I've seen, and I've seen a number in my day. Thanks. <laughs> and it was very professional, and it was very, um, you know, it, it, it sort of hit to the core of, of what's going on here, is that, you know, a lot of Canadians that just fall into this acceptance of the status quo, you know, oh, I have to wait four months. Okay, that's all right. It, it must be like that in other countries, but it's not. And and the campaign is going to wake people up, I think, wake politicians up, but also wake, educate people that, you know, this isn't what's going on in other countries. Other countries are doing a better job, and we can do a better job. Just last week, we learned of a story of a woman with dementia that was placed in solitary confinement in a cement-blocked room at a London hospital uh, with nothing more than a stretcher. And her food was served to her on a tray on the floor. And 
images from the room show profanity just written all over the walls of this cement-blocked room. How is that acceptable? But what's worse is the hospital came out with nothing more than apology. Oh, we're sorry. No one was fired. Oh, no, we're sorry no we didn't meet your expectations. Which is worse. No one was fired. No consequences for this. Uh, and what's worse is this could happen again. And it does. These aren't one-off stories. We hear them every single day. Part of the reason why other countries do so much better is because they cover more broadly. There are things like dental. There is universal drug coverage. Remember, Canada is the only country without in the OECD in single payer systems without a national drug plan. So there are things that Canada can be doing, ways we can be spending our dollars that's that's better than what we're doing now. Okay, what's next with the campaign? We have 26 chapters across the country and in most provinces and territories, and we'll be engaging them and they'll each be launching their own uh, local healthcare campaign. So if you want to get involved, reach out to us and we, we can get you connected with one of our chapters because what we have planned next is really exciting. Okay. You should give the website because uh, I know a lot of people would want to, you know, not only share their voice, but also share their story. That's right? the other yeah. thing is we do have a on our on our website on our it's carp.ca slash fix healthcare now um there's an there's an opportunity for you to a get involved and uh, receive updates from us by email but also for you to share your own healthcare story and we'd love to hear from you marissa lennox chief policy officer at carp david kravitz vp at zoomer media zoomer magazine senior editor peter mugridge fight backs monday zoomer squad for more information on the Fix Healthcare Now campaign, go online to carp.ca. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Election Day in Israel this past Monday got us thinking about proportional representation, a system many Canadians want and was promised by Justin Trudeau during the 2015 federal election campaign. You'll recall the Prime Minister took a lot of flack for going back on that promise. The proponents of proportional representation say it's fair because, for example, 30% of the votes yields 30% of the seats. Opponents point out that it's usually more expensive and yields coalition governments, which are less stable and give inordinate power to small, sometimes single-interest parties that may hold the balance of power. In Israel, for instance, ultra-Orthodox parties hold sway over large aspects of personal life. And as for the vote this past Monday, it was another political deadlock. Final results from Israel's election have confirmed that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has again fallen short of a parliamentary majority with his hardline allies. Lydia Milgen is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Windsor. She joined Libby on Monday to revisit the idea of proportional representation for Canada. A lot of the times proponents say proportional representation has all these benefits and you and there's no significant policy difference. What we find when we look at fiscal matters is that proportional representation does have an impact on policy and it does in, in, in the following way. When you have these kind of stalemate governments where you, where you have a proportional representation, you're much more likely to have a coalition government. Like 85% of the time you're going to have a coalition government in a PR system. What that means is that you're going to have to have 
coalition partners. And again, proponents say this is more democratic because it ref- reflects the, the popular vote. But the downside of it is that coalition governments just cost more money. They basically cost 25% more because every single one of those coalition partners, and remember in some of these countries, it's not just one or two coalition party, partners. You can have up to three or four coalition partners. So each of those coalition partners says, you know what, if we're going to prop up this government, maybe we're not going to get a seat at the cabinet table, but we want to make sure that the the things that we find are important, they're going to get funded. And every single partner has that kind of thing. And so the debt goes up, deficits go up, the cost of government goes up. Um, so there is a, a significant policy impact when you have PR systems um, over, you know, over a large um, amount of time and over a large number of, of countries. The other side that, that I, I guess I, I take issue with, with PR is that it moves the power away from the people and much more in favor of parties. As you just pointed out in your introduction, political parties are in control and you're not exactly voting for somebody from your constituency. So in Canada, that's an important component of our electoral system is that we want our regional representation. I want to make sure that the person who's going to represent me in Ottawa um, or Queen's Park in in the case of provincial comes from my area um, and they know and they live in the riding and they know my concerns and I can go to them. In a PR system, you might not be represented by somebody uh, who lives in your area and in fact it disproportionately benefits, you know, the, the big cities. So the people who are the elites and who come from cities, they're much more likely to get voted in than people people from rural areas who are considered, you know, a little bit less sophisticated by their political parties. You've talked about how it doesn't usually yield local representation, but uh, there are some forms of proportional representation that do, and apparently the ones that were proposed for Canada would have that element. I I don't really quite understand how that would work. Uh, Can you explain that to us? Right. So, I mean, there's there's lots of different uh, ways to do proportional representation, and, and we get sort of in the weeds. The one that seems to be the most um, sympathetic to a lot of people is this idea of mixed member proportional, where you have some of the seats um, elected um, based on geography and others based on party lists. The downside of that is that they change the the boundary sizes so that and and the riding sizes get very large. So if you have a so for example, I, I live here in southwestern Ontario, and right now we have um, about five ridings in my area. So what they would do is make that one big riding, and say two of those seats would be from local people, and then three of the seats would be from a party list. So still you would have representation from the party um, based on their proportion from your riding, and you might have one or two per- people from your riding. So it sort of deals with that. But then basically what we have right now is five people from this area representing this area going down to two. So that's where you, so that's where the compromise lies in a, sort of a mixed member proportional system. Do you think this is coming back anytime soon as an issue or uh, has it been put to bed? I think, you know, it, from time to time it comes up. Uh, the one to, the province to look at is Quebec. They had actually said initially they were going to do electoral reform uh, and not have a referendum. They seem to be backtracking a bit on that. So that's the only province I see anything happening. BC's gone to the polls three times, and every single time they get a lower and lower support for professional representation. Ontario had it on the ballot once. We said no. Um, Prince Edward Island's done it a few times, but they 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 tend to also have a no vote or at least have a very low voter turnout that they don't have a lot of appetite. For the most part, this is really wonky political science stuff. Like I've been studying it for years, and I get it. 
confused. So I can see why most people be like, oh, my God, can she stop talking? This is so boring. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but you know what? That Israeli election, not boring at all. (laughs) No, no. But, you know, I guess that's the old uh, proverb, you know, you don't want to be living an interesting time. Lydia Milgen is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Windsor. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. While the Ontario Liberals choose their new leader today, Ontario's PC Premier Doug Ford is nearly halfway through his mandate. Recent polls suggest Ford's popularity has slipped in some surveys to below the leaderless Liberals. This past Monday, the Premier lost his patience with reporters when, at an unrelated event, he got upset when he was asked about the new faulty blue Ontario license plates. Joining Libby Snymer on Tuesday to talk about how the Premier is handling himself these days, Fightback's crack strategy panel. Charles Bird, managing principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Karen Stins, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Enough with the license plates. Like, okay, we, we, we know that they didn't work. 3M is dealing with it. They're coming back with some level of concoction that's going to make it better or stronger or more visible at night. Um, there's been multiple press releases on this issue. The minister and others within the, within the legislature have discussed the license plate issue. It is a license plate that, that, that has been, that went wrong. There was an acknowledgement that it went wrong. They're dealing with it in a way that they can deal with it. But look, look, the, the press release that was, that was sent out for, for this press conference was basically on a historic deal with Ring of Fire, an issue, by the way, that the Liberal government over many many years was not able to deal with and do, and so they've actually had to deal with the with the Indigenous community to actually work on on Ring of Fire, which is going to be huge for Northern Ontario and for the Northern communities. So, you know, I think the the Premier was right to say, look, you know, there is actually a historic deal with Indigenous leaders at his side to talk about a deal that was cut that wasn't been able to be cut. Let's talk about that for a uh, while. No, I, I, you know what? I get that. It's it's the fact that he lost it over yeah. this and I, something he should have been prepared for. And, and I mean, you know, uh, I don't want to tell tales out of school, but we were all silently giggling when we heard that. Right. Because there is that moment being an elected official where the things that you want to say and the things that you should say and the things you can say are not always the same. Yeah. <laughs> and this was one of those moments. It really should have been an inside voice. And, uh, you know, because unfortunately what happens is even if he was um, legitimate and feeling frustrated and all of that, unfortunately, the outburst took away from the topic at hand, which was yes. the ring of fire. Like nobody's talking about the ring of fire. Everyone's talking about the outburst. And so that's just the consequence of, of not filtering when sometimes it's very hard to filter, but necessary. I mean, does, does that say something about his, uh, you know, uh, control leadership, Charles, or is it just, you know, whatever? Everybody has little. Hissies. Well, I just want to say off the top, when license plates go bad tonight on Zoomer Radio. Uh, I mean, it was a it was a dumb, dumb decision made early in the life of the of the government to change Ontario's license plates to conservative blue. It was silly. It was partisan. It's no wonder it continues to be catnip for the media, just given what a debacle this thing has been, notwithstanding the involvement of 3M. But what's really telling about it is that, you know, since the dumping of Dean French as his chief of 
staff, the Premier has quite conscientiously tried to project a, sort of a kindler, gentler image and someone who's more experienced and familiar with the robes of office. Um, and this got away from him. I think he was particularly frustrated because not only was it ring, and fire, ring of fire and all the economic development uh, that that could entail over the coming decades, but it was also meaningful progress with Indigenous groups, which mm-hmm. is really important given just recent events. And I think he just lost it. And I think this is something that his advisors will have to take him aside and say, you know, the thing to have done in this situation was to have dealt with the question of the license plates very succinctly and then moved right into the area you want to be talking about, which is Indigenous groups partnering with the government on uh, development of the Ring of Fire. Okay, so this poll, I'm pretty sure, was done before that little outburst and it shows Doug Ford I mean down four percent since December when everybody thought that he was coming up he was shaking it off well I think you know and we've seen other polls where he's actually gone up a bit and and has, has increased in fact I think that our show last week we talked about the fact that he's increased a bit in some of the polls so it depends on some of the questions and the timing of it I've always said that polls are a snapshot in time and uh, and and I think quite frankly after this outburst that he had I think he's actually going to go up in, in in poll numbers I think people are going side with him and say, yeah, what the heck are we still talking about license plates for? We should be talking about policy issues like Ring of Fire and other things. But uh, I do I do believe that the that there is a, a conscious um, effort from the government since the, since Dean French has left and since the cabinet shuffle, since the summer, since the federal election, uh, which has only been a, last October, only a few months away, but that, that he has done a lot and has changed things. And I do believe it's starting to, to seep into the psyche of Ontarians. Um, and, and it's like anything else. It's like turning a cruise ship. It's going to take some time before people actually start reflecting on some of those things. And I think some of the changes that the government's done on some policy issues and others uh, and the focus that he has on trying to resolve the, the, the school strikes and, and that kind of stuff. I think you'll see an uptick in in, um, uh, in this. And I also believe, too, once the Liberals pick Stephen Del Duca as their leader, which seems to be inevitable uh, this coming weekend, uh, and Ontarians start realizing who Stephen Del Duca is, I think our polling numbers are going to go up. John Capobianco, Karen Stintz, and Charles Bird, our Tuesday strategy panel. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. While COVID-19 continues to make headlines around the world, public health experts here in Ontario continue to try and put the virus in perspective for people living here. We are being told we are still at low risk of contracting COVID-19. This past week, federal public health experts put some new travel restrictions into effect, asking everyone returning from Iran to self-isolate for two weeks. The word out of China seems to be good, with the number of cases dropping but going up in other parts of the world. You may be wondering if you should change your routines and plans because of the virus. On Tuesday, Libby spoke with Dr. Matthew Miller, an associate professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences at McMaster University, and Dr. Alan Baseman, an epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist with the University Health Network. One reassuring feature of all of these cases, although it is concerning that, that the cases are rising, is that still all have epidemiological links to areas of the world where we know transmission is going on. So despite it, cases are increasing, despite the fact that we're concerned about what's going on across the world, the reassuring aspect that we can 
sort of hang our head on right now is that all the cases in Canada, at least, have all been linked back to travel, and we haven't seen yet any transmission in the community here in Canada. Okay, and they've been linked back to travel to Iran and travel to China. What about other places that have cases, Dr. Matthew Miller? Like, what about Korea? It has a lot of cases, uh, but but I think a lot of them were were traced back to a certain church. Yes, that's right. So, I mean, the the decisions to um to ask people to self-isolate or to make travel restrictions uh, are really based on sort of the nature of outbreaks in these other locations. And in Iran, the ability to trace the individuals who have been infected um, hasn't been as good as in some of the other uh, locations and countries where there have been higher number of cases. Uh, and so in areas where there's more extensive evidence of community-based transmission, um, it becomes much more important to put more um, rigorous uh, control measures in place uh, for, for individuals returning from those those locations. Does it make sense to ask people coming from South Korea to, to self-isolate? There are, we're seeing uh, several thousand cases in South Korea at this point. It's challenging to ask a large group of people who are coming uh, from outside the country to self-isolate because, of course, they have uh, school or work to attend to and other various personal activities. Um, if they're not symptomatic, then generally speaking, they don't need to isolate themselves. However, if things change in South Korea, if we have high numbers of cases, then we may see that recommendation. In general, we should follow what the uh, government of Canada has recommended regarding travelers coming from outside of uh, Canada. Dr. Vaisman, what do you want to leave uh, people with? It it seems like the longer this thing lingers, uh, the more worried people are. Yes, it's true that um, as this continues, people are getting more and more concerned. On the other hand, the longer we're seeing this and delaying it using other techniques, the more people are starting to get used to the idea that this is going to come. And also uh, public agencies are making resources more available and federal governments across the world are making resources more available to try to invest in uh, protecting their uh, population against it. So although, yes, the lingering aspect of it does make people more concerned, it does buy some time for money to become available, research to be done, and uh, people to mentally prepare also for this outbreak to occur in their own countries. And Dr. Miller? Well, I think what's really important is that um, people, I, I think what the public really needs is a, is a comparator um, to which they're familiar and, and the ability to sort of assess relative risk. So the data to date, which is becoming more extensive by the day as the virus continues to spread, suggests that the risk is relatively low for people under 50 years of age. And of course, in older individuals or in individuals who have uh, underlying medical conditions like respiratory conditions or cardiovascular conditions, the risk of the infection being more serious is, is higher. And so people need to sort of gauge what their relative risk is um, before deciding whether or not it's worth changing their behavior. Certainly in most young, healthy individuals, the evidence suggests that this is a mild infection that for most people wouldn't even require a visit to the doctor. That doesn't mean, of course, that it shouldn't be taken seriously, but it does mean that, you know, we don't all need to shudder ourselves in the interim. That was Dr. Matthew Miller, Associate Professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Biochemistry medical sciences at McMaster University, and Dr. Alan Vaisman, an epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist with the University Health Network. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Sam in Parkdale called about whether we should get rid of the time changes ahead of tomorrow's return to daylight saving time. I don't think it's good to uh, to the daylight saving time. I don't think it's healthy. In BC, apparently they were thinking of bringing, of keeping the um, uh, daylight saving time uh, only. And apparently, they were. I think medical uh, experts were saying that was the wrong one to keep because it's better for the natural time. It's uh, better uh, health wise and emotional wise. And this is why they were they were arguing against it. So uh, I think, of course, it is a natural time. So why wouldn't it be better? And now. Now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Ron in Guelph, who weighed in on whether we should get rid of the handshake. I'm 71 years old, so obviously I grew up in an era when um, you were taught as a child to uh, be respectful and shake your somebody's hand. I mean, I I drive the school bus. I mean, with the kids on I bus, I mean, um, for the most part, I give the kids a fist bump, and they all love it. I mean, you still giving still nothing wrong with smiling as you, you know, give somebody a friendly fist pump. You know, I guess it's just you know in this era, you know, I'm, I mean, we're so much worried about whether it's the flu or the COVID nineteen. Um, everybody's worried about it, so are are times changing? Who knows? That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.